Well, how many of you have ever beheld something so beautiful that your mouth literally dropped? Something that was just so breathtaking as you're standing there looking at whatever it was, something so breathtaking that you wanted that moment in time to last forever. Uh, For many of us, maybe we're thinking of a spectacle of nature. Um, That's actually where my mind goes. I think of uh, the Grand Canyon in all of its glory. I've spoken about the Grand Canyon before. I'm, I'm from the state of Arizona where the Grand Canyon is, and I grew up about three hours south of the Grand Canyon. And many, many times over the years, um, I have visited the canyon, and each and every time I see it and I approach that south rim edge of the canyon, my mouth just drops. I am just struck with admiration and wonder. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, but the pictures never do it justice. They're actually quite underwhelming. You look at a postcard and you're like, wow, that's just, that's not that cool. I mean, it's beautiful. When you actually see it, you are just, you're struck by its, its sheer massiveness. You look at it and you're in awe. Even, even someone like me who's not afraid of heights, I'll, I'll, I'll approach the edge and I'm, I'm paralyzed with, with fear. I look over and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is scary. But as I think about the Grand Canyon now, here in Johor, it's just a picture in my mind. It's just a glimpse. The glory of it in my mind has already blurred and my emotional affection for that canyon, it's already dulled. I haven't seen it in years. Well, today I want us to look at a spectacle of glory that never fades. Something so mesmerizing, so mighty and beautiful, that we cannot help but turn our focus to it over and over and over again. We're going to look at a glimpse of eternal glory that demands all of our affections. A glimpse of glory that puts on a spectacle so beautiful That if we're given, and I pray that we are given eyes to see it, if we're given eyes to see it and behold it, I believe that we cannot and never will be the same again. So we're going to be looking uh, today at the transfiguration. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 9. So that's Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Give you a few moments to open there. Uh, Flip in your Bibles, look on your phones. We have Bibles in the back. Um, Please do follow along um, as we we look at this passage. All right, are we there? Awesome. I'm going to read the passage. This is the word of the Lord. Mark 9, starting with verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, it, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. 
for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Well, today we're going to look at this magnificent event about the transfiguration, uh, where we're going to see a glimpse of the risen Christ's coming glory. And I, I want for us to determine together uh, today, why, why would God show his disciples, specifically Peter, James, and John, why would God show him this? Why would, why would he show them his radiant, Jesus' radiant glory in this particular way? And why this event matters to them and why it matters to us, because I think it matters to us profoundly. And so I've, I've actually summed up the main idea from this passage um, in one sort of uh, phrase, one, one proposition. And it's kind of a mouthful, so I'll repeat it. But the main idea is this. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of Christ's glory as the divine and sovereign king who will come again with power. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of Christ's glory as the divine and sovereign king who will come again with power. And, and as we look at this magnificent glory now in the transfiguration, I believe that we're going to see two things here. I believe that we're going to see, number one, that as we look at his magnificent glory, we are going to grow in a healthy fear and reverence for, God, uh, for the sovereign God. We're going to grow in a healthy fear and reverence for our sovereign God. And number two, as we look at his magnificent glory, we're going to desire to listen to God's word and obey it with delight. We're going to grow in our desire to listen to his word and obey it with delight. So let's begin with that first point, that as we look at his magnificent glory in the transfiguration, we will grow in a healthy fear and reverence for our sovereign God. Beginning with verse 1, okay? Beginning with verse 1, you're going to notice um, that verse 1 is actually attached with Jesus' previous discourse from the passage that Sam preached last week. So verse 1 is attached to that that actual time and setting. But it's absolutely crucial that although it's attached to that passage, it's crucial to the understanding of today's passage. And you'll see why here in a moment, but I'll read it to you. It says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So immediately, you read that, and some questions should arise about what exactly he's talking about. What does he mean that some of the disciples present on this scene will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? What, what is he saying there? Is Jesus, is Jesus referring to uh, the coming of his spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Is he speaking about the second coming, his second coming, and the arrival of his kingdom? Or perhaps he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Well, if you look at your English translations, you'll notice there's a title separation between verses 1 and 2. Just take a look there, and it says, uh, in the ESV at least, it says, The Transfiguration. That's the title that they wedge between 1 and 2. And to be honest, that, that title separation sort of throws things off. If you read it, you're tempted to separate the two verses. But actually, they're inextricably linked. 
And, and I, I, I want to draw note to that because when we look at our Bibles, we see numbers, we see, uh, we see red letters, we see indentations, titles. All these things are really helpful for us. They help us to organize the word and sort of break it down into bite-sized chunks. But actually, all of those things, though helpful, they're not actually inspired. They were not in the original manuscripts. And so when we see titles like that, um, they could throw us off. They could separate passages that aren't meant to be se separated. And so today I want us to read one and two together as if that title's not there. And you'll see that the question is pretty simply answered in verse two. Verse two says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. So here it is, that's, that's the answer to verse one. What is Jesus talking about? Well, verse two tells us. This prophecy in verse 1 is directly fulfilled in verse 2. And this sum of the disciples that will not taste death that Jesus is referring to in verse 1, that's actually Peter, James, and John here in verse 2. So here they are. They're on this mountain. They haven't tasted death yet. And they're witnessing perhaps the most magnificent scene that we find really in all of the Bible, the kingdom of God appearing before them. So what are, they saying, what are they seeing here? What are we seeing here? What, is this, what does this mean? Well, for starters, what we're seeing here is something that is totally and completely beyond anything we can ever grasp. It is otherworldly. And without a doubt, the disciples this, on this day, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into as they hiked a tall mountain with Jesus. So, so here they are. They're at the summit of this mountain, and suddenly there Jesus is transfigured before them. Now, the word transfigured, in the Greek, it's metamorphos. It basically means transformed. So it says that he literally changed from one appearance to another. And verse 3 describes his garments as radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. If we were to look at the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, you'll see very similar descriptors, okay? In Matthew 17, where, where Matthew's telling this, this story, um, it says something really similar. It says his face shone like the sun, his clothes white as light. Uh, and then in the Luke Gospel, Luke 9, it says that the appearance of his face was altered, his clothing dazzling white. So we get the point, right? Basically, his garments are so white that we can't even describe the brightness. And actually, verse 3 in our passage today says that no one on earth could bleach them. And actually, um, in, in the Greek, in the original language in this passage, it actually uses the word for launderer. Launderer, someone who does laundry for, for others. And that word is ganetheus. So more specifically, if you were to read this, it would say no launderer of, of garments, no launderer in all of the land could make his clothes this white. And another interesting point in the Greek here is that Mark uses a double negative he, uh, for the word no one. He, he adds emphasis by saying no one, no not one. So basically no one, no not one launderer could do this. And this is really interesting because what the gospel writer is trying to do for us, he's trying to convey that what we are seeing here, what the disciples are seeing here, is otherworldly, spotless, white as snow perfection. 
Mark's trying to show us that this is a pure holiness beyond anything that they or we could ever imagine or grasp. And it becomes immediately clear to Peter, James, and John from this scene that this Jesus, the rabbi that they had been walking alongside, this Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just a mere mortal man. And if he's more than just a mere mortal, then he is to be revered and exalted. Peter, James, and John, they were undoubtedly familiar with the Old Testament. Okay? Even though they were kind of just ordinary guys, um, they are Jewish, and so they're familiar with the Old Testament stories. And so being on the mountain, seeing what they're seeing, this scene would have probably uh, immediately evoked to them images of the prophet Moses in the Exodus story. I know our, uh, some of us are working through Exodus as a church. This is what the disciples would have been seeing. They would have been seeing uh, the prophet Moses, where Moses experiences something very similar. You'll remember when he goes up, he actually he goes up to Mount Sinai multiple times, but on one of his journeys, he's up on Mount Sinai, and God is veiled in a cloud. And hearing God's voice speak from the cloud, it says afterwards Moses descended the mountain and his skin was shining. His skin was shining. What he saw on that mountain was so glorious that he came down that mountain with the, the Ten Commandments and his skin was shining. And it says that his followers at the base of the mountain, they were filled with fear. So can you imagine right now, Peter, James, and John, they're looking, they're thinking of this scene in their minds, and Moses himself is actually here. Moses. And then not only Moses... Elijah's there as well. These are two of the most notable figures in redemptive history, and they're here on the scene. And it says that they were talking with Jesus. And then fear immediately engulfs Peter, James, and John in this moment in such a way that notice the response of Peter in the passage. If you know anything about Peter, he, uh, he likes to, to speak impulsively. He says a lot of things that gets him into trouble. Actually, in the passage before, last week, uh, you'll remember uh, the passage that Sam preached from. Peter was just rebuked by Jesus himself for saying, for actually trying to rebuke Jesus, for talking about his death and resurrection. And he had just been rebuked. Now, six days later, they're up on this mountain, and guess who sticks his foot in his mouth again? Peter. And so he speaks impulsively, and out of a place of ignorance and fear, he says, uh, why, don't we, why don't we make some, te some tents or some tabernacles for the three of you? Uh, we can make one for, for each of you. And he's probably thinking, I don't know what to do. But he might be thinking as well, these are esteemed guests. Like these are legends of old. I need to, we need to prepare something for them. We need to do something for them. There's a lot of conjecture out there about what Peter must have been thinking uh, when he says this by saying what he says. And one commentator, Danny Aiken, says that Peter was so excited and scared that he just had to say something. His mind would only catch up with his words after the cross and the resurrection. So Peter, he, he obviously doesn't understand yet that Jesus is the embodiment of the true and perfect tabernacle. He doesn't understand that he doesn't need to perform any works for Jesus. He doesn't need to try to please Jesus in that moment. But the text says that he didn't know what to say for they were terrified. 
So what we know is it's clear that they are afraid. And I want for us to consider for a few moments the substance of this fear that, they were, that he was experiencing, that they were experiencing. For one, they were absolutely aware that what they were seeing was completely beyond them. They knew that they did not belong in the presence of the glorified Christ. He was too glorious. He was too holy and pure. And they were not. They were not worthy to be there before him. But notice how they react. They, they, they don't necessarily react the way that we would expect them to react. I, I think uh, if, if I were up there, I probably would have just tried to get out of there immediately. You know, any normal human being that's seeing this would have been like, I'm out. Try to get down the mountain as fast as possible. But they don't react that way. Instead, they stay put. And Peter even says, probably trembling, Rabbi, it is, it's good that we're here. So this fear that they're experiencing, it's also paradoxically comforting to them. They understand that what they are witnessing is of divine significance, and they don't want to miss it. Then we look at verse 6, and it tells us that a cloud overshadowed them. A cloud overshadowed them. Now, this cloud would have also stood out in their minds um, as, as something that was strikingly similar to that story in Exodus, right, on Mount Sinai with Moses. They would have remembered the Lord going before his people in a cloud in the Exodus, guiding his people in the wilderness. So they're thinking of, they're seeing this cloud and it's hearkening them back to their Old Testaments, the Exodus story. Theologian William Lane says this. He says that this cloud would have brought them comfort because it was depicted in the language of the Old Testament where the cloud is frequently a symbol of God's presence and protection. So to the disciples here, this is a fear that draws them into the presence of God. It's not a fear that makes them run. It draws them in. It engulfs them with his nearness and his presence. Is that not just amazing? They, they're fearing a God that is not distant, not far off, inaccessible, waiting to destroy and punish them. Perhaps like a, an, abusive, an abusive father or an abusive boss. But rather, they're fearing a powerful God that is so beyond them, yet he's also so near and present, desiring to protect and shield. Shouldn't we, church, shouldn't we draw comfort from this reality, especially in today's world? Because in today's world, when we hear the word fear, we are immediately tempted to think of something negative, right? And some of you might be thinking, the last thing that we need in this world today is more fear. Isn't the world filled with enough fear? You, you look at the current events of today, and they're all undergirded with fear. We got coronavirus. We have natural disasters, snakes, public speaking, abusive relationships, law-based religions, all these rules that we have to, have to follow. If you don't follow them, something bad's going to happen. And some of you are, are feeling the weight of those worries and fears. You're tired. You're coming here today tired and anxious and worried. And I, I know what that feels like. I very much know what that feels like. 
But friends, I want to assure you that the fear that we're talking about today is nothing like the fear of the world. Radically different. The fears of the world have one mission, to enslave people, to enslave us. But as Christians, we follow a God that gives us a spirit not of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. It's what Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. So maybe you're thinking, okay, that's, that's kind of confusing. You're saying fear God, but then you're saying he gives us a spirit not of fear. So, so how do we hold this together, the idea of fearing God but not fearing? And I think the answer to that question is this. Fearing the Lord is the redirecting of our fears from the objects of this world and directing them towards a holy and righteous God. Fearing the Lord is redirecting our fears from the objects of this world and directing them towards a holy and righteous God. Again, guys, this is a God that is so utterly unlike us in spotless perfection, yet he's also so much like us in the humanity of Jesus who relates to us in every way. And he came down to live among us. John 1.14 tells us that. It says, the word became flesh to dwell among us. That word dwell in the Greek is actually tabernacle. He came, Jesus came to tabernacle among us. He came to set up camp among us leaving his glory in the heavens. This picture we're seeing is his glory in the heavens, and he leaves that glory to come down to us. It's amazing. Just look at this scene with the disciples. It's clear at this point that Jesus is definitely more than their rabbi teacher who does some awesome miracles. He shows them his divine, sovereign glory in the transfiguration. So he's more than just a man. But then right after this scene, he returns to his humble state, back to being their human Messiah that walks beside them. Friends, a healthy fear of God acknowledges that love is fundamentally the very nature of God. Love is fundamentally the very nature of God. And it's a love that is fully exemplified in a father who calls Jesus his beloved son and a God who loves Jesus so much that he would give his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. And it is this perfect love, God himself, that drives out fear. That's what 1 John 4.18 says, a perfect love drives out fear. Peter, James, and John, they feared. They didn't run away. So likewise, friends, cling to Christ, fear him and him alone. You'll remember Proverbs 9.10, it says this about fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So look at the glory of Jesus. Revere his holiness. Consider that his righteousness has been accounted to you if you place your faith in him. But we have nothing to fear in this world if we fear the Lord. And may the fear of the Lord permeate every aspect of our lives. 
Well, as we, as we look at the magnificent glory of Christ in the transfiguration, uh, we're going to grow in a healthy fear of the Lord, which brings us to point number two, that as we look at the glory of Christ, we're also going to desire to listen to the word of God and obey it with delight. We're going to look at his glory and we're going to want to listen to him and we're going to want to obey him with delight. Now, it's important to spend a bit more time looking at the significance of Jesus hanging out with Elijah and Moses. Um, Eric uh, was, was um, elaborating on this a little bit during the Lord's Supper time. But this picture has so much literal and symbolic um, significance. Why, why is Jesus hanging out with Elijah and Moses in the transfiguration? What's going on here? Well, first, Jesus transfigures before Peter, James, and John. And then Elijah and Moses appear, and it says that they were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, we're not given anything else in regard to what they're talking about in this Mark account. It says they're just talking. Matthew's gospel says pretty much the same thing. But in Luke, if we were to go to Luke's gospel, in true historian fashion, Luke includes something that is incredibly important to, the under, to understanding the theological significance of what's taking place here. In verses 30, 31 of Luke chapter 9, it says that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were speaking of Jesus' death. And some versions say his departure. And what's fascinating is that the word for death that Luke uses, the word for death in the original language in the Greek, is actually the word exodus. So the word he uses is exodus, exodus. They're speaking about the exodus. Well, we know it's not the first exodus. You all remember that story, right? Moses leads God's people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. He parts the Red Sea, and he wanders into the wilderness in hopes of leading God's people to the promised land. And we know how that story ends up, right? That group, that first generation, they didn't make it to the promised land. They were extremely disobedient. They turned their hearts and their attention to idols. And even the group that did make it in to the promised land, it didn't ultimately bring them true spiritual rescue. But this moment here on the mountain, we're seeing the signifying of something so much better, a better exodus led by a better Moses, Jesus, except this leader, the Savior, he would lead his people out of the eternal slavery of sin in a new exodus through a new Passover. No blood on the top of doorposts for God to pass over the sin of his people, but this Passover would be a bloody death, atoning for sin once and for all for sinners. And his resurrection where he would overcome death establishing a new covenant with a people who respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he calls them the church, us. What a glorious picture that we have here uh, in the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are here right now representing everything that came before, the law and the prophets. All that was predicted about the Messiah to come. And in this scene, with, with Moses and Elijah by his side, it's a symbolic statement, a shift, of Jesus fulfilling all of the law and the prophets. I think that's absolutely amazing. 
And I think when we, when we look at that and we look at this reality, we should trust his word all the more. It shows us a God who keeps his promises. It shows us a God who validates and fulfills all that was written before him, all that was written before hundreds and hundreds and years before his, uh, his arrival. It shows us a Jesus who's going to lead his people to a greater and a better salvation, eternal life. So as we listen to his word, because the voice of God, the Father speaks, we want to we wanna notice that in verse 7, if you guys will look at verse, verse 7, God says this. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we see another reason why we are to listen to his word. Maybe you'll remember back in Mark chapter 1. We preached Mark chapter 1 a few months ago. Um, and during Jesus' baptism, the voice of God speaks from heaven. You remember that scene? It was the only other time in the gospel where the voice of God speaks from heaven. And it's God speaking to Jesus, his beloved son. And in that picture, the baptism, we're seeing the signifying of an inauguration, the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. Fast forward to where we are today, and in this scene, the voice of God speaks again. But this time he's signaling something different. He's signaling the beginning of Jesus' ministry departure. Again, we have God, the Father, reaffirming his love for his Son. He bestows glory upon him, just like in Mark 1, speaking of his sonship and speaking of his, his, his eternal satisfaction for Jesus. But this, this time it's not merely a statement, an isolated statement of identification. For right after the Father says this about Jesus, he says to his disciples what? Listen. He says, listen. William Lane says that what this is actually saying is because Jesus is God's son, God's only son, because of that reality, the, the disciples are exhorted to listen and obey him. So this is, the listen is a dependent clause of Jesus being the son of God. In other words, if we were to look at it like this, because Jesus is the son of God, now listen to him. Because of this glorious reality, you should listen to him. So may we also take heed of this exhortation. Because in today's society, we need to be showing our allegiance to the word of God. Because we hear all sorts of voices in today's society. Everywhere we turn our ears and our eyes, we hear voices crying out for our attention and our allegiance, both literally and figuratively. We hear voices of influence that, that are clear. They stand in the face of God. They stand in the face of his very holiness. We see voices, we hear voices that encourage us in the pursuit of our own self-pleasure and indulgence. Voices that encourage us to taste the sweet temptations of the world. Voices that we as Christians know ultimately lead us to death and destruction, sexual sin, greed, pride, lying, and on and on and on. Those are the obvious voices, right? But there are also voices that don't appear to have anything wrong with them at face value. Maybe it's a great world leader or an admirable celebrity, institutions, motivational speakers, 
and so on and so forth. Voices that appear to have authority, and maybe they're demanding our allegiance and, and loyalty. And perhaps some of what they're saying, if not most of what they're saying, is true. But we need to remember, Christians, that there's only one word that we can ultimately trust with complete certainty. A word that never returns void. And might I even say that this word that we're reading today, more fully complete, might I say that it's even better than what these three disciples literally saw on this mountain and literally heard from God himself. What we have is better than what they're experiencing on that mountain. You might be thinking, that's crazy. Like, they literally see Jesus transfigured and they actually hear the voice of God. And you're telling us that what we have today in this book is better better than what they have. And I'm saying yes, absolutely, and don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to Peter himself. Peter, many, many years later, in his letters to the churches, you remember his two letters that he writes to ordinary churches, much like the one here today? In 2 Peter 1, he says this, thinking back to what he experienced here on the Transfiguration, he says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, friends, this, this prophetic word more fully confirmed that Peter speaks in this passage, that's what we have in our hands today. We have the word of God more fully expressed than what they're seeing and hearing on this mountain in the finished Bible, the 66 books, the whole canon. And so may we lift up the word, lift up God's word as preeminent with the utmost of authority. Christians like us for 2,000 years have held to this word of God's inspiration, authority, and sufficiency. And for 2,000 years, Christians have gathered like we're gathering today, where they've read this word in their own personal devotions. And as they're doing that, they have believed that they are listening to the very word of God. And so as we read and obey his word, which is Jesus, right? John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God identifying Jesus as the word, as we listen to the very word of God and obey it, we're actually doing what the Father says to do here in the transfiguration. Listen to his beloved son. And so we know that looking at the glory of Christ, we're going to grow in a healthy fear of him. And we know that it's going to give us a desire to listen to him. It's going to give us the desire to obey it with delight. 
But as we look at his glory and the transfiguration, we're also going to see that it helps us wait now in hopeful anticipation for his glorious return, where he's going to return again, and he's going to look much, much like he looks in this passage today. And so looking at this glory, it helps us to wait. Verse 8 shows us that as dramatically as the scene begins, it ends. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So it's like, wow, such a dramatic scene, and now all of a sudden it's over, just like that. Back to the ordinary, two feet on the ground. Jesus, in his humble state, next to his disciples. And, and now, their, Jesus' divinity is a little bit clearer to them, but they're obviously not, they're still not sure how it's all going to pan out. We'll see, actually, in the following verses, um, if you were to read that on your own, they're still a little bit confused. But soon their why questions are going to be answered, and it will all make sense to them. And so here we are today. Many of us know how this story ends with Christ and his death and resurrection. And we also know that this story has not yet completely ended for us. And those who, who aren't familiar with the story, those of you who are still searching and seeking here, I would encourage you to keep reading. Read the word of God and, and behold the glory of Christ. And then for those of us here that are Christians, will we together continue in waiting for the Lord in longing anticipation, waiting for his glorious return? And will we continue to proclaim and point people to the glory of God in the word? And point people to the one and only son, Jesus. And would we Christians together continue to look at the glory of God for ourselves in the word? And would we continue to grow in fear and grow in delightful obedience of him? Let us pray. Father God, this passage is too much to behold. It still is so beyond us. But we want to thank you for giving us a glimpse of your glory that we now wait for, we now long for. We, we want you to come back if we, if we properly understand what it is that you've done for us in the death, burial, and resurrection. Then we understand that you have only begun something that you will bring to completion. And we know that we still have to wait two feet in the ground in a fallen and broken world a world that desperately needs to know the hope that we have. But God, we have this picture of glory. And we get to look to the future as we're present. We get to look to the future in, in longing anticipation for your return. God, I pray that, that if anything uh, was most clear in this passage, it's that you are glorious. You are glorious and beyond us. But yet, you're also so near and close to us in Jesus. And I just pray, oh God, that your word would not return void today and that it really would encourage those of us along in our faith and that uh, if there are people here that, that have not yet embraced this Christ, have embraced this gospel, I pray that this glory that they see in Jesus, it would taste so much better than anything in this world that they could ever experience, anything in this world that they could ever grasp. And I pray that they would turn in repentance and follow after Jesus, the one who could take away their sins. 
and the one who wants to grant them eternal life. God, we pray that uh, together as a church, we would not just leave here listening to the word of God one day a week. We would actually go to your word each and every day. We would seek it and search it and ask for truth and ask for you to change us. And I pray that we would grow in Christ. Thank you for this time. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.